Welcome to Broad and Walnut. I'm your host, Michael Gorman. We are brought to you today by Run Avalon. RunAvalon.com. If you want to look good and feel good and look thin, that's right. No other brand will make that claim. You will look thin. Go to RunAvalon.com and buy some of their apparel. They're offering a special deal right now to Broad and Walnut listeners. Type in the offer code Broad and Walnut at checkout and get 20% off your entire order. RunAvalon.com. Okay, on the pod today, we have the condo king of Philadelphia slash current city councilman, Alan Dom. I think you'll be hard-pressed to find anybody more passionate about making Philadelphia a better place than Alan. During the first half of the interview, we talk about his childhood and his rise to real estate supremacy in Philadelphia. And in the second half, we get into the nitty gritty of city government. We discuss his goals as a city councilman and what he's accomplished so far, specifically his contribution in the new police headquarters negotiation. I found Alan to be fully engaged and absolutely determined to make Philadelphia the best it can be. I hope you enjoy our interview. Here we go. So I wanted to have you on the podcast to discuss city government and how you found things during your first 18 months as a councilman. But I'd be remiss if we didn't discuss your background as a very successful businessman, as I think they're connected. Obviously, your experience working in the city for all these years has led up to you eventually running for city council. And I wanted to learn, and we can go through this quickly, but if we could start at the beginning, where did you grow up? I grew up in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Okay. And... Where Bridgegate occurred, but it wasn't famous back then. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was always industrious and entrepreneurial from the age of uh, four. My brother and I, who was seven at the time, we went out. We lived in an apartment building, um, a two-bedroom, one-bath, 800-square-foot apartment, small, with my parents, and a 60-unit building, and the orange and black bus would stop at our corner and take people from our building and all the way down to, in Jersey into the Port Authority in New York. But we were the last stop. So my brother and I, at 5.30 in the morning, would go out and shine shoes for 25 cents and come back inside at 7.30 and have to go to school. How but old were you then? Four. Four. <laughs> but we were very, very industrious. We used to, uh, I had all kinds of long, we then moved to Angle Cliffs, a suburb north of Fort Lee. I remember my parents bought a house for $47,000 and they had to borrow money from both of our grandparents and uh, wow. my father was making $9,000 a year at the time. So it was a struggle. But... Um, I had a lawn business then, and I used to cut lawns when I was 11 years old. I had to pay two paper routes, one in the morning at uh, 5 o'clock and one in the afternoon at 4 o'clock when I came home from school until I was 13. And then uh, I had a lawn business of about 8 to 10 lawns where I used to cut lawns. You, know, you only got paid $5 until you probably get yeah. paid $50, but that was a little while ago. And then uh, I had all kinds of different jobs in high school, but I also was on the wrestling team. And golf team was an unusual combination, mainly because my parents wouldn't sign the release for me to play football. But um, I went to school at American University in Washington, and I went to school, and I took all night classes, graduated in three and a half years, and worked full time. Let me stop you real quick. Getting back to when you were a kid at 11, working three jobs, essentially, right? I guess two paper routes and a lawn care business. Mm-hmm. Were your parents like, Alan, what, what, you know, what's going on with you? Or were they, were they... They, uh, they never uh, discouraged me. They always encouraged me, mm-hmm. uh, and I always saved the money. I was a big saver. 
In fact, back in those days, you had savings and loans. Most people won't remember this, but you had these little cardboard foldouts where you put your nickels and dimes in and then take them to the bank. And it could have saved $5 or $10, but that's how you used to save money. Yeah. And so I was taught at an early age to save before you spend, which I think is the key to financial wealth. Save before you spend. Because I know many people in the real estate business that make a lot of money and have nothing to show for it. Mm-hmm. So I think that was an early, early lesson. But I also think that uh, you know when I went to school, Actually, it's interesting. When I was 13, my parents were going to buy a piece of land in a community called Palm Coast, Florida. And, the, and they used to have land salesmen come up to the house. So a land salesman comes to the living room of our house. I'm 13. It's 1968. And he's selling them a property. I remember they were buying a property for, I think it was $1,500, a piece of land. You know, some swamp in Florida or whatever. <laughs> right. And... Um, yeah, they were putting down like $50 and have like a payment of whatever, $40 a month or some crazy number, $30 a month. And um, I asked the guy if he had any property on the water. At 13? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, I have uh, a couple lots, and the lot was 12500 And I had already saved about $1,500, which was a lot of money for 13 yeah. back then. And um, I said to my friends, so I'd like to buy the lot. They said, you're crazy. We're not, <laughs> you're not doing it. We have to sign. So you're not able to do it because you're not legal age. So I called my grandmother. And I said, hey, Grandma, I really want to buy this lot. I've saved my money. I really, and then tell my parents. I said, if you would co-sign the paperwork, I really, really would do it. And I won't default. Because my grandmother was living on Social Security at the time. And she had a, a CD that she earned interest, like $100,000, which was like a lot of money back then mm-hmm. that she got interest on. That's how she lived. So, um, but she could qualify with me, you know. She was the qualifier. Sure. She agreed to sign the loan oh until God. after my parents found out. They got very upset at her, but they got over it. And then I saw I bought this property when I was 13, my first piece of real estate. And I remember the payments were $142.63 a month. Wow. Because I had to make that payment every month, which forced me, forced savings, to have to have jobs to pay that payment. I didn't want to let my grandmother down or default, so I had to have jobs. And you had to pay it in full. Your grandmother wasn't helping you. No, I paid it myself. Yeah. I had to get a checking account, the whole deal, which, by the way, was a great lesson. Mm-hmm. Great lesson. Great money management lesson. So um, I did that until, just an aside, until I'm 25 years old, 12 years later, and I find out the lots were at 25000 because it was on a corner of the intercoastal waterway. So I sell the lot, made the 25000 I had it paid off at that time. Mm-hmm. And today it's probably worth three hundred to three fifty. So I learned a very valuable lesson. Don't sell good real estate. <laughs> Getting back to college, when I went to school at American University, I took all my classes at night, graduated in three and a half years, worked full-time during the day at a company called Phelps Time Lock Service, a time recording door lock service that recorded for commercial businesses what time stores opened and closed. It really dealt with internal theft, because 78% of all theft in the country is internal, people who work for you. Okay. So like Rite Aid drug stores, back then there was Walgreens, there was uh, Woolworths, they're gone, but they would send to the owners what time stores open and close, and if anyone came in after hours, so it was a security. Now, today, you don't, that's so antiquated. Today, you have alarm systems, electronics. Sure. You didn't have that back then. So you're out of school now. You're working for this company. You're full 25. Um, uh, well, I was working for this company when I started at 18. Okay. There's a lot of jobs in the middle I'll leave out, like I was a Uber man for four or five days. didn't work out. I worked at Howard Johnson's for a month as a short order cook, gained 20 pounds. <laughs> because uh, I was eating my mistakes and uh, left there. But I was working for Phelps Time Lock in Hyattsville, Maryland, full-time, basically three and a half years. And as a, I started out as a serviceman and then a repairman. Then I asked them if I could sell. They had no salesperson. They said yes. 
And the problem I was having was I was like 19 or 20, and I, I flew, I remember, to uh, Cincinnati. I think it was Cincinnati or I forget where. I think it was Cincinnati, Ohio, because I had to go to Ashland, Kentucky. Okay. Because I had a sales call for Ashland Oil Company, 600 locations, gas stations. That's a big, big deal, right? And uh, when I flew there, I, I couldn't rent a car because I was under the age of 21. So I take taxes. <laughs> remember that it was like challenging. Yeah, yeah. But I did sell that account. It was a huge account. But um, I did that for three and a half years, and they said to me, "Hey, we have an opening in Philadelphia. You did so well. Do you want to? It's a franchise. Phelps was a franchise in Philadelphia. I didn't know anything about Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You want to come to Philadelphia and buy the franchise?" I said, "Sure." I didn't get it in writing. Big mistake. I come here making fifteen thousand a year in nineteen seventy-seven, and I'm killing myself working eighteen-hour days to build a business. Over a two, two and a half year period, I build a business from a gross of 240. They've been in business since 1904. Okay. Up 240 to over 600,000. They give me a $10 a week raise. I said, this is ridiculous. Okay. Now I'm making 15,500. I could survive. I heard a guy on the radio named Jay Lamont on a radio show called All About Real Estate, WPEN 95 AM. I was listening to the radio show. And I said, you know, I'm gonna take real estate classes at Temple. So I took my classes in 78 and 79. And uh, at the end of 79, I passed the exam and started to real estate part-time. But part-time for me in 1980 was I'd go to the real estate office at 6.30 in the morning, go to my full-time job at 8.30, take one-hour lunch and return my phone calls, and then leave the real estate office at 6.30 and have appointments until 10 o'clock, 10.30 at night. Wow. So it was two full-time jobs because Saturdays and Sundays I'd work 10, 12 hours in real estate. So it wasn't good for my marriage at the time. Okay. Uh, but it was good for my career because I eventually, after three years of doing that, um, I went into real estate full time. And you know that when I look back now, I'm just realizing that right now, yeah, I had two full time jobs then, which oh. is what I'm doing today. Yeah, right. So I know how to. You know, I know yeah. what that's like. Is city council a full time job? For me, it is. It's it forty is. to fifty hours a week. Wow. So for 30 years, you're brokering real estate, you're developing deals, you obviously become super successful. Um, you didn't you didn't say it. But, but, I, you, but I will say this. Yeah, yeah. And I say this to everybody. Sure. You make a living selling. If there's one thing I want your listeners to take away from this, yeah. is this statement. You make a living selling real estate. You create wealth owning it. And the whole goal in life to a degree is passive income. Mm-hmm. Having income that generates without you having to work for it. So to anyone listening, you make a living selling it. You create wealth owning it. And thank you for that. That's okay. Yeah, uh, that's something I live by. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I besides that piece of land I bought when I was thirteen, uh, I bought a house. I remember in Jenkintown in nineteen seventy seven when I first came here. I didn't even know you can negotiate. By the way, on real estate, the guy was asking forty seven thousand for sale by owner, three twenty five Greenwood Avenue, and I said, okay, I'll pay the price. I didn't know you can negotiate. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then I'll take that, it. Yeah. Then after that, I bought condos in Society of Towers when I converted Academy House. Hopkinson House, this was 79 and 80. And some of them I still have. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the other secret I think is to, if you can, um, live on way less than you earn. Live below your means. Yep. And invest the balance. There's always two things you can buy in life. Things that melt away and things that increase in value. And the more allocation you put to things that increase in value, the more you can have things that melt away later. <laughs> That's good advice. So, so, what, so the, the term condo king of Philadelphia, do you remember when that... Uh, I never gave myself that name. People not self-proclaimed. Gave, well, so people have given me that name, but I've never used it. Yep. Uh, one of the things on investing, I do believe in 15-year mortgages, even though most people say take a 30. Sure. I love a 15-year because you get rid of the debt, you have it paid off, it becomes a cash cow. Yeah, of course. And uh, for those people that are thinking about investing, they should look at a 15-year. Yeah. I so, also think, I mean, there's an emotional 
aspect to it, right? Yeah. Shedding that mortgage after right. 15 years feels a lot better than having it 30 years. And if you don't live on the revenue, it becomes a machine that generates more cash flow that gives you the ability to buy more real estate. Mm-hmm. That's the whole key. Okay. In 2003, I had the Barclay commercial space. And uh, I had it since 99. I interviewed many restaurateurs from, uh, at the time, Neil Stein, um, George Perrier, to move back in there. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the Barclay commercial sure. space. To uh, Fleming's, uh, the steakhouse. To, at that time, uh, Roy's had a family location. They wanted it, but I didn't want to rent to them. Cheesecake Factory wanted it, but I didn't want Cheesecake Factory because I didn't think that level would be the right level for the Barclay. And then Sam and Harry's out of Washington Steak Company wanted it. Several companies wanted it. But I wanted Stephen Starr, so I went to Stephen Starr and uh, said to him, hey, I have this great space. Do you have an interest? He goes, no. My focus is Old City. At that time, it was. And was he was he Stephen Starr then? Was he six, as He had Connell. He had Budokan. Okay. He had Tangerine. He was opening Elvez. He was no. Yeah, four or five locations. Okay. Uh, and everything was the other side of town. And he felt this was too stale at Rittenhouse at that time. And I said, no, I think Rittenhouse could be good. And we went back and forth. And uh, long story short, we worked out a transaction where I got involved actually as an investor also. And uh, yeah, six months to a year after that, he asked me to get more involved in star restaurants, which I did. So now I'm um, very involved in star restaurants across the board. And I'm also involved, besides real estate, I think the opportunity in the restaurant business is to own the real estate let the restaurant become your tenant. Okay. So I think that's really the, the key in the mm-hmm. restaurant business. Because when you look at the Forbes 400 richest people, one is in the restaurant business, the guy who started Subway. <laughs> 60% are in real estate. Wow. So there's a lesson there, I think, also. Sure. But um, I'm very involved in the restaurant business, not just with Star now, but I have uh, little things like Mac Mart on 18th Street. Oh, you're hip, hip City Veg. I'm um, involved with Milk Boy and Loco Pez. Yeah. A whole bunch of those. Schlesinger's and Delicatessen. There's a lot of... Uh, bait and switch, a lot of different concepts I'm involved with. Do you believe that having these cool, hip restaurants around help you as a real estate broker or help they you help sell? the neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. I'm against chains. I love entrepreneur, entrepreneurs. I love Philadelphia entrepreneurs the most. Mm-hmm. And I love to see them thrive. And if I can help them in any way I do, even if the returns are not great, it adds to the whole fabric of the neighborhood. Sure. And many neighborhoods thrive on these local institutions that we have. We have a tremendously great restaurant scene in Philadelphia. In many ways, that helps the real estate scene. I mean, last year, I don't know if you know this, one out of four commercial leases were restaurants. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing now in retail is that less and less people are buying in stores because they're buying online. But you can't eat online, okay? Yeah. You can't get the experience online. Yeah. So millennials, for example, may not value clothing as much, but they value eating out in coffee shops and restaurants much more than my generation. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, you hate. You said you hate chains and you like independence. It seems like... Philadelphia, in the city at least, is resistant to chains a little bit. I, I see these chains come in and, and not perform at yes. the, the numbers they do in other cities. I think that's great. Yeah, that's <laughs> good. It's good to know. All right, so for 30 years, 30 plus years, you're brokering real estate, you're developing real estate. As I mentioned, you become super successful. And at some point, I guess, along the way, you get a hankering to run for city council. Well, you know, I realized when I was president of the Board of Realtors that in those three years of 2013, 2014, and 2015, that it might be beneficial for me to run for council um, and help the city as a business person with issues that are they're confronted with and offer my services. Because at the end of the day, for all of us listening, mm-hmm. the most important most important to us is the financial health of the city of Philadelphia. Without the financial health of the city, we all have nothing. You don't have law firms. You don't have bookstores. You don't have restaurants. You don't have real estate companies. You don't have investments. You don't have retail. 
without the financial health of the city. We need the city to be financially healthy. So I thought I could add some value in that area. Okay. And that's, you know, besides other areas, but I thought that would be a big area I could add value. Yeah. The, the centerpiece of your agenda was to collect $1.6 million, $1.6 billion in delinquent property taxes. Right. How has that been going? So actually it was $1.6 billion of delinquent taxes across the board. Okay. Uh, real estate taxes are just under $500 million that are delinquent. And so we did a study. We had the National Taxing Institute do a study over a year ago. We had a press conference with the mayor and Council President Clark, and we announced the results of the study that basically said if we adopted the New York City method of tax collection, which is a tax lien securitization method, uh, we could we could collect one time up to $120 million or more, and annually at least $40 million. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Yeah. Of which 55% goes to the school district. And by the way, the whole method of collection is not about throwing anyone out of their home. It's about going after those who choose not to pay, not who can't afford to pay. Most people don't realize we have payment programs in the city that if you qualify, you can pay us $25 a month for 150 years. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> so this is not a, no, there's no gain to take anyone out of their home. That's not this goal. But the goal is if somebody owns 42 properties and lives in Villanova, which they do, mm -hmm. and they're delinquent on all 42, uh, maybe in their $5 million home in Villanova, we need to go after them and collect these taxes. So what has been the issue? They, are they just saying, you know what, the city's not going to come after me, I'm not going to pay? All right, we haven't had a strong enough hammer. Two and a half years ago, we did a small, small tax lien sale, $17 million. We sent out notices, one notice stating that. And by the, that one hammer of one notice, 55% of the people wrote a check <laughs> just with the notice. So the proofs that it works. Yeah, of course. In New York City, the method in New York City they use, they send out four notices, a 90, a 60, a 30, and a 10-day notice. They collect 85% from the notices. Why are we doing that? That's what we're working on. That's now. what you're trying to do. That's okay. Trying to do. Uh, so your your campaign, uh, you know, we're, we're starting to talk about what you're doing now, but your campaign, uh, you run, it goes well, obviously, and you're elected to an at-large council seat in November of 2015. And just a quick background for my listeners who may not know how the city of Philadelphia government works. There's a city council, which I would equate to the Congress at the federal level, and this council is made up of 17 members, 10 of those with districts and with constituents, and seven which are at-large. And at-large doesn't refer to Allen's bank account. It means citywide, no constituents. So, so Allen runs for one of these seven seats. He wins. And now it's been about a year and a half since you've been in city government. How have you found it? How's it going? Um, I found it. Um, everyone told me it would be slower than I would want it to be. And it is. Uh, but I found that, that we've had some good successful wins and some and input that's been successful. And I think that I'm respected there. And I think that uh, I think the best part about me is that I'm doing this for one reason. That's to help the city. You know, my salary is $129,000. I've donated to 25 different schools every year, different schools. I'm yeah. not doing it for any money. And uh, I don't want the money. I'm doing it because it's more important to me to help the city. So let's just be clear on that. You're not doing it for any money, and you're working 50 hours a week at it. Yeah. <laughs> but let me, let me say this. It is so important to have a healthy city. It's so important for yeah. all of us. Sure. All of us. So, and I will say this. In real estate, our goal is to help people. And in government, we have the same goals. We help people. It's very similar. And you get tremendous satisfaction out of helping people. So I will say that... My decisions aren't necessarily based on how do I get reelected. My decisions are what's best for the city in the next 10, 20, and 30 years. Yeah. And, uh, 
Yeah, that goes to the uh, Inquirer building recent purchase. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, so, so can we talk about that? Sure. So I'm, I got into that. By the way, I just want to mention one other thing. Besides the real estate taxes that are delinquent, yeah. we have $390 million of delinquent water and sewer, which is going to be the next package we're going to go after once we clean up real estate. So we have $492 million of delinquent real estate, $390 million of water and sewer, and $134 million of delinquent BERT business income receipt taxes, business taxes. And maybe $29 million in commercial trash not paid. It's just, if you or I were in this business, which I am, yeah, now you it's, are, it's right. unacceptable. Yeah. And that's why I'm all over it. So I, on, on an elementary level, these people get the bills. They say, you know what, I'm not paying them, or they don't have the money, or whatever the case may be. And then the city follows up, I guess, with another letter, then they may follow up again. And then at some point along the way, the city just kind of forgot about it? Is that what happens? Sometimes they forget about it. Something gets lost in the shuffle. Sometimes they just can't get the money from the people. And sometimes the city doesn't write off the bad debt. So part of this is we need to clean up our books because sometimes you know, a business income receipt tax, they may be out of business. I don't think we're going to collect $134 million. In fact, if you said to me we're going to collect $25 million, I'd say it's a blessing. But then let's clean up our books yeah. because my position is that we're all about collecting delinquent taxes and improving our bond rating because our bond rating, as it goes up in value, so does our, our interest rate. Borrowing goes down. It's like your credit score when you're buying a home. Yep. You want a higher credit score so you get a better interest rate. So the more delinquency we have, it affects our bond rating. The more less cash reserves we have, it affects our bond rating. And as that bond rating slips, our interest costs go up. Got it. So it's our goal to increase our bond rating and have our interest costs go down. Let's take a quick break right there so I can tell you about Run Avalon. If you like running, biking, yoga, tennis, boot camp, whatever your workout may be, and you want to wear the most breathable, lightest, and best-looking apparel while doing it, go to runavalon.com. And from now until Labor Day, Run Avalon is offering a special discount to Broad and Walnut listeners. Just enter the code Broad and Walnut at checkout and get 20% off your entire order. That's a great deal. They offer free shipping as well to anywhere in the United States. And if your order is on Seven Mile Island, Avalon, or Stone Harbor, They offer free same-day delivery, which is a really cool idea. I have to tell you, my wife and I have a bunch of Run Avalon gear, and you will not be disappointed. It looks great. It feels great. And as they like to say, it captures the spirit of those who relish in kicking up before kicking back at the beach. Go check them out today, runavalon.com. Okay, coming back from the break here, I wanted to offer a little context because Alan and I kind of get right into this next conversation. What we're talking about here is that the city of Philadelphia recently struck a deal to move the police headquarters from its current location between 7th and 8th on Ray Street. They're in that brown, round-looking building that's nicknamed the Roundhouse. They're moving it from there to the former Philadelphia Inquirer building at Broad and Callow Hill. You'll hear Alan and I keep referring to the Inquirer building. This is the former home of the Philadelphia Inquirer at Broad and Callow Hill. This has gotten some attention, not only because of the structure of the deal, which Alan details, but also because just a few years ago, the city acquired and renovated a building at 46th and Market, which was going to be the home of the new police headquarters. So apparently that plan has now been squashed, and now they're going with the Inquirer building. The structure of this new deal is that the city will lease the building for a period of time and then purchase it. So that's what we're talking about when we come back. I just felt like you needed some background. All right, now back to the pod. So let me talk about the Inquirer. Yeah, so you mentioned the Inquirer building. About seven or eight weeks ago, I'm called to a briefing. I had no idea what was going on. There was seven or eight council members in the meeting and staff, maybe 25, 30 people. 
and we were told about the Inquirer purchase, and I asked a lot of questions, and I didn't get a lot of answers. Who tells you this? Uh, the administration gave us a briefing. It's Mayor Kenny. Yeah, but not Mayor Kenny, but, but people, his the people staff, yeah. yeah. Gave us a briefing, you know, and they said, we're not going to go to 46th and Market. And I had gone and looked at it, and I understood why. That was a disaster decision. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a disaster. That was not a smart decision to go there. Because the building didn't work, or because the building location? would have cost way more than we thought. Location wasn't as convenient. And it was just, uh, I think it's a white elephant. We had to figure out what to do with it, but it was a bad decision. And when was that decision made? A couple of years ago. Okay. Before I was there and before Mayor Kenny was there, by yeah. the way. So this is clearly a better decision for us. But uh, I couldn't get the numbers initially. I got the numbers maybe two days before the hearing. This is like four weeks later. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just said, you know, I can't attack the construction costs because I don't, I don't have enough time to do that. And I got into this thing in the ninth hour. But I can discuss the purchase price and the financing of it, which we did. Long story short, we had a lot of negotiations back and forth. Uh, I'll say they were friendly negotiations with Bart. So Bart, Bart Blatstein is the owner. Some yes. people may not know this. Bart Blatstein is the owner of the Philadelphia Inquirer building. I guess yes. he bought it many years ago at this point, five yes. years ago, six yeah. years ago. And it's kind of been sitting there vacant. Right. He bought it for a casino, which I don't think worked out. And so this is probably called, I call this Plan B. Mm-hmm. So in, in the short of this, uh, we saved on the purchase price $10 million, $7.5 million now we've negotiated, and $2.5 million in five years, which is real savings for the city. Yeah. But the bigger piece is uh, the financing of it. We structured it so that the city potentially will save 120 to 240 million dollars over the term of the loan. The original deal was we're going to lease it for eight or nine years and then go into the market in the ninth year and borrow for 19 years, which would be a total of 28 or 29 years. And we had a projected interest rate nine years from now. My point was, why are we doing that? And the reason was because the seller was going to get 40 million of tax credits. Okay, and my point was, oh, that's great, but I don't want the city to have the risk of interest rates. Because we had to project, where are they going to be? Five, six, seven percent. Sure. So I said, here's what we want. We want the seller, or maybe it has to buy it down. We want the seller to take out a mortgage today of 3.75 fixed okay. for 19 years. And in the ninth year, we want to assume it at no cost and no prepayment penalty. So there's a lot of discussion, let's just say, around that topic. Okay? <laughs> Between you and the seller. The seller and a group of other people that were involved. There was a lot of people, 15, 20 people in the room negotiating. And... Um, after several hours and whatever of negotiation, let's just say we'll get to the end of the game, they came back and said, we can't do the no prepayment penalty, but we can get 3.75 fixed, no cost to assume in years eight or nine, which was huge for us. Sure. First of all, the city then takes over the loan with only 10 years to go, and we know what our interest rate is. It's 3.75 instead of six or seven. Lot fixed. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. We save 120 to $240 million in financing costs, and... Uh, and how we negotiated the price was because we couldn't get no prepayment penalty. I asked for $15 million off the price, and they, we came to a conclusion of 10 let's just say, after some negotiation. So how much money did you save the city in full? Do $10 think? million on the purchase price. Yeah. And depending on rates, we don't know. Sure. Between 120 and 240 But more importantly, it's a different concept. We're not kicking the can down the road. It, goes to back my, it backs up what I feel about investing. In 19 years from now, yeah, we'll have a higher payment now, but in 19 years from now, I may not be alive. That building will be paid off free and clear. Yep. And those people 19 years now, from now will say, you know what? You guys did the right thing. Yeah, of course. Not like kicking it down and have to worry about it in 20 years. I, I don't feel like this is getting enough press, and maybe you don't care, but I mean, you you, you, you being on city council with your knowledge and your background, by, the, by you being on there, you just saved the city, you said, hundreds of millions of dollars. Plan Philly wrote about it, and the Business Journal wrote about it. Yeah. Inquiry never really picked it up. No, I know. Um, and if you're not on city council at that time, then... That wheel's going through. Yeah, it's not It's not happening. 
Um, okay. By the way, that wasn't you know the only real negative of that deal was ten million dollars off the price for the seller, and maybe some cost to get us the buy down, but it was more of the creative structure of the deal that saved the money than anything else. Sure. Not having to go into the market nine years from now and then have another nine years on the loan. Yeah, of course. All right. So one one more bill I wanted to get to, which has gotten a lot of attention, a lot of attention, and still gets a lot of attention. And this was approved by the city council by a vote of thirteen to four last year. You were one of the yeses. Was the so-called soda tax. The actual name, I think, beverage is tax. The, the beverage tax, the sugar sweetened beverage tax. So this bill imposed a 1.5 cents per ounce tax to the cost of most drinks with a sugar-based sweetener or artificial sugar substitute. So mostly soda, Gatorade, iced tea, energy drinks. And the money collected from the tax was to fund and is funding pre-K programs and citywide rebuilding of parks and recreation centers. Uh, so this tax obviously had a lot of pushback from soda distributors. And so far, the revenue from the tax is lower than the projections. So for the year, they project now, after the first six months, that it's going to be about $76 million, I guess, and they originally projected $91 million. So about a $15 million shortfall there, But which you know I don't know whether it's a big deal or not. Obviously, the, the soda distributors are making a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, press about this. But one thing that's getting every, everyone's attention is um, the the supermarkets are complaining that their their business is down. Jeff Brown has come out and said his, his business is down 15% because people aren't going to city supermarkets, they're going out to the suburbs to buy their soda. How do you feel about the soda tax and how it's going? I should first tell you, this was in the Inquirer, by the way, mm-hmm. that I voted for the beverage tax only for one reason. I had a commitment. I was against the beverage tax. Oh, you were? Yes. Because my goal was two things. One, collect the delinquent taxes, and two, fix the commercial assessments. And back in, you can, and all commercial brokers can blame me for this, but back in February of 2016, I went to the mayor. It was, and by the way, he's been great, Mayor Kenny. He's been great. Uh, he was very attentive, and I told him, uh, we have all these commercial properties that aren't assessed correctly. Without naming addresses, I'll give you some examples. Properties that sold for $40 million assessed for four. Properties that sold for $97 million assessed for 32 New land purchased for $48 million assessed for 18 all these discrepancies, and I said it's not fair for the commercial people to pay 20 or 25 percent or 10 percent on their value when the residential people are paying 80 to 90 percent on their value. And everyone who lives, works, and owns real estate should pay their fair taxes in the city. And I said to him, I don't think we have the expertise in government to analyze the commercial properties. We don't, have, we don't pay enough money, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can make more money on the outside, private, than you can in public government. And you know the appraiser who appraises a row home in northeast Philadelphia doesn't have the skill set to appraise sixteen hundred market. And I had suggested we go outside and hire a commercial firm. Mayor agreed, so finance director Rob DeBose doing a great job. Um, and we went outside. We put out an RFP. It cost five hundred thousand dollars, and it produced one hundred eighteen million of new tax revenue for the city. So let me just say that I went back, and this was just recently that we didn't know that back then. But in, fe- in February, when this was going on in March, I said, I'm in favor of two things. Fix the commercial assessments and collect the delinquent taxes. And I said, if we do those, we won't need a beverage tax. I see. And the administration said to me, listen, you support us on the, this is politics. Sure. Which I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> they said, if you support us on the beverage tax, we'll support you on those two initiatives. And they have lived up to their word. Wow. Okay. So I did vote for the beverage tax. And by the way, I wasn't a fan of it. Uh, I did watch a movie called Fed Up, and when I watched the movie, I had a different perspective of everything, because it wasn't so much, I'm not looking to hurt anybody, including Jeff Brown, he's done a great job for sure. Jeff Brown, he's 
he's a blessing for us, and I feel badly that he's affected. And we have to figure out how to help people like him because we don't we want them here. Yeah, of he, course. He's, he's a great good person, great Philadelphian. He's just a great person. Um, but I watched this movie and it showed how sugar is affecting not just beverages, all sugar, all sugar is affecting young people. It's a movie called Fed Up. I suggest your listeners. I will watch it. It's, I'll check it out. It it, it uh, changed my viewpoint of sugar, especially the damage it's doing to our teenagers. And all these diet things have so much more sugar in them than we think. Yeah, it's a, it was an amazing uh, documentary. But anyway, so I was against the beverage tax, but voted for it. Were you against it because you kind of thought it was un-American in, in that, like, hey, no. you shouldn't have people no, can do whatever I'm, they want? And they call me a fiscally conservative Democrat. Okay, I was against it for one reason. I don't want any new. And I ran on this. I don't want to charge a new tax. Although, until I've collected my delinquent taxes and fixed the efficiencies in government before we have a new tax. By the way, if we had done all those things and still needed money, then we have to look at these sources. But before we do anything, let's make our government as efficient as possible and let's collect delinquent taxes and fix the assessments. So, by the way, the $118 million, we don't get it all. The city gets 45%. Who gets the school district gets 55%. So this is money for the schools. Yeah. Same thing with delinquent real estate taxes, money for the schools. So there's more efficiencies in government. So that, that money for the schools, real quick, sorry to interrupt, but that money for the schools, does it go to hiring better teachers? Is that sort of, like, We don't control that. We write a check, and the school district decides that. Okay, got it. So, I mean, the idea of this is ultimately that the schools will improve, right? We hear a lot about the schools. Look, we're faced with a major problem. In five years, this recent teacher contract, by the way, I think the, re- the recent teacher contract came about largely because of the additional revenue over the next four years of the, uh, that the schools are getting in the commercial assessments. That was over $220 million that helped make close that gap. Okay. Uh, but I think that we're going to be looking at a billion-dollar deficit in the next five years. We need to address it now. Really? It's a serious problem. Wow, okay. So it's coming down the pike. Got it. Um, but on the area of efficiencies, it's mm-hmm. not just real estate taxes. It's not just commercial assessments. It's overall government efficiency in every area and every department. Because what we don't realize is our overhead of government. In the private sector, when you hire somebody in your company for a salary of a dollar, typically you pay 31 to 32 cents for fringe benefits. City of Philadelphia, when we hire somebody for a dollar, it's 87.7 in fringe benefits. Oh my God. Going to 92 cents in the five year projection. On top of that, the city overhead, meaning the desk space, the phone, the computer, all the other stuff that goes up you know, hiring somebody, is another 37.7%. So when you hire somebody for $50,000, the budget hit is 112. I pointed that out at every budget hearing to people. That's incredible. So they understand you can't keep hiring people. Yeah. The impact's not the 50000 it's 112. Worse, you hire somebody for 100000 the impact is 224. Which, by the way, when you think about it, tremendous return on investment paying $500,000 to commercial appraisers for $118 million. Yeah, of course. And um, it was a, no, no fringe, no nothing. It was just one check and done. Yeah. So you mentioned at the beginning of this interview that it's so important to you to, to make sure the city's healthy and the city's better. How do we attract new businesses to Center City? So I hear that a lot, that the tax structure, certain things affect new businesses moving into the city and, and taking up office space. And I, obviously Comcast has been able to figure it out. They're building a second building. They may even build a third building. So what what is happening there and how do we attract new businesses? So I'll, I'll give you a negative and I'll give you a positive. I think the negative is, we, at some point in time, instead of putting Band-Aids on everything, which we, we typically do, we need to really look into uh, our whole tax structure and restructure our taxes, have an overhaul, and say, you know, like, what's best for growth, and we look at everything. 
and, and maybe may, that may mean, might mean more property taxes, but less business taxes, which I know the Levy Sweeney plan is trying to do. But I think we need to look at it in a, in a whole holistic. What's what are best practices and figure it out. Because every time we need money, we create a new tax. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems that we can't continue to do is to create taxes that are only applicable to Philadelphia and not applicable to areas outside of Philadelphia. So it makes it too easy for the company to say, hey, I'll see you in Philadelphia. I'm going to Ballard Kinwood or I'm going over to the Jersey. Yeah, Camden, right? right. <laughs> you can't have taxes that are just for the city. By the way, if the beverage tax was statewide, it would be a lot better for Jeff Brown. Sure. It's the fact that it's not just... Uh, the whole state, it's just Philadelphia. That's the problem, because you can go right over the border and buy. So we have to look at taxes that don't unfairly tax Philadelphians. But but is the burden of business taxes in Philadelphia much greater than they are in, say, Charlotte, North Carolina? Is that is that the issue? Is it when... They are, because we have a city of population of a million to 560. We have 400,000 people in poverty. We have 181,000 in deep poverty, and our needs are much different than other cities. Got it. With the second, I think, poorest city in the country. So we need to fix that problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to speak to two issues on that. One is the earned income tax credit. Hopefully this is a public service announcement to all your listeners. We left $100 million in Washington, D.C. last year of earned income tax credits, federal, federal money that could go to 40,000 Philadelphians who qualify, don't know about it. It's a federal program for those earning $7, $7.25 to $23 an hour. Example, a single parent, $44,000 of income or less, or a couple at $50,000 income or less, both having two children under the age of 18, can get checks from the federal government up to $6,000 and file back three years addition. Which so would be could, significant for them. $24,000. Yeah. So when they don't do it, the, it comes out of our paychecks, by the way. It's called federal withholding. When, when they don't get their money, they're not getting help, and our economy's not getting help, and it's going into Washington, D.C. Hmm. It's a disgrace. Yeah. We need to get the word out. We had 40, 10% of our people in poverty could get checks. And, and the reason they're not is because they don't, they they don't, don't know. Their... And by the way, I say this to everybody. This is the most powerful thing we can do. It costs us nothing. Yeah, sure. We're already nothing. paying it. Yes, zero money. <laughs> and as an elected official, I always say to them, my number one goal is to get as much money from the federal government as possible. The second goal is the state... Harrisburg, and the last resort is the city of Philadelphia. Hmm. And in, in prior years, we've reversed that. We just go tax ourselves. I mean, what I think we should have is for any city money that we give out, have them file a cert- certification that they filled out the EITC form. Let them get the money from the federal government first that's sitting there and going to waste before they ask for the money from the city of Philadelphia. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, that, that to me is a big issue. But let me talk about the growth potential. Sure. We had 100,000 millennials move to Philadelphia in the last 10 years. Phenomenal. 100,000 in the last Remember 10 said years. Remember, there's a negative and there's a positive. Not yeah. even the positive. Yeah. 100,000 millennials have moved to Philadelphia in the last 10 years. In the last 12 months, we had the highest percentage of millennials moved to Philadelphia than of any major city. The Pennsylvania Economy League did a report on technology recently. From what I recall, 25% of all new jobs in technology in the last 14 years were created in technology in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. 25% of our new jobs are tech-based which is amazing, one out of four. It also said the average income of tech jobs is 39000 higher than any other field. Hmm. And it also said, which is really good for us, one out of three jobs in tech don't require college degrees. One out of three, 33%. Pretty amazing. Yeah. And the last piece that I think is powerful for us is it said the economic job multiplier of technology is five to one. So for every job we create in tech, we create five more jobs. It's the highest job multiplier of anything. Most are 1.6 to 2. So 
you know, Mayor Street used to say, hey, I love building new buildings in Center City and new hotels in Center City, because it's not just about the hotel in Center City, it's about the hundreds of jobs it supplies the neighborhoods with. And technology is kind of like that. Yeah. For every new job in tech, five more jobs are created. How does that work? Like, who are, the, who are those five new jobs? Well, most of your new jobs in tech are, A, high-level jobs. So you need people under them. Got it. Then you have services that they require. They're, they're buying goods and services. It could be restaurant people. It could be clothing. When you do the math, it's sure. a five-to-one economic That's job. incredible. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. But Philadelphia is on a roll. 100,000 millennials here in the last 10 years, highest percentage. And I believe it's a couple factors. One, it's our position, location-wise, geography-wise. And also think a big piece is our affordable real estate. Mm-hmm. Everyone's saying real estate's expensive. Go to the other cities and you'll see what's expensive. Go to San Francisco or go to New York yeah. and you'll see what's expensive. We are the second most affordable largest city in the country. You can still buy a three-bedroom, 2,000-square-foot home here for $250,000. And with a 4% mortgage, what are you talking about? $1,000 a month? Right. Maybe twelve fifty with taxes and insurance? So are you noticing in your day job when you're out uh, brokering real estate deals, are, are the people getting younger? Well, there's, there's two buyers in the market today, millennials and baby boomers. Wow. Okay. But, um, my, you know, my real estate job is usually 6 to 8 a.m. in the morning, <laughs> and then it kicks up again at 5.30 in the evening to 11 o'clock, and then on Saturdays and Sundays is a lot of it. Wow. But um, I would say that overall, Philadelphia's doing pretty well. We could do a lot better, and we need to create more opportunities for jobs. What we really need to do is do three things. We need to attack the poverty issue. We have three goals. Take 100,000 people out of poverty, create 100,000 new jobs, and bring 100,000 new residents here in the next five years. Those should be our goals as a city. We should figure out how to achieve those goals. Great. Uh, three quick questions that I do at the end, and then we'll end this. Favorite restaurant in Center City? I'm biased. Okay. So if you're asking me for a really good steak, I'd say Barkley Prime. And if you're asking me for uh, hipster Mexican, Loco Pez. Loco Pez, okay. And I shouldn't keep it just at Center City. I should have said Philadelphia. But um, All right, favorite uh, bar to grab a drink? I like Bait and Switch. And I also like um, Bait and Switch is in Port Richmond. Okay. So it's not that close to grab a drink. Yeah. But I also like Charlie Was a Sinner. Charlie Was a Sinner, okay. What is the most expensive condo you ever sold in Philadelphia? Probably somewhere in the eight to ten million dollar range. Okay. Well, well, Alan, uh, I cannot thank you enough, and on behalf of everyone in Philadelphia, I, th- I, I will I will say that we are really lucky to have you. Well, thank you. Working and living in the city, you're obviously making a huge difference, and I, I really thank you for your time. Oh, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, it's not work when you love what you do. Unfortunately. I love working in real estate. I love working in city council, helping people in the city. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, so that concludes our interview with Alan Dom. Alan is really a remarkable Philadelphian, someone who's making a difference, and we really appreciate his time. So thank you, Alan. Uh, He offered a bunch of different advice, financial advice, throughout that interview, which I'll be posting on our Twitter page, at Broad and Walnut is the handle, at Broad and Walnut. Please follow us on Twitter. Over the next week or so, I'll be posting uh, different things that Alan said and different pieces of advice, so go check that out. And if you like this, please subscribe to us on iTunes, as I mentioned at the end of every podcast. Go subscribe to us on iTunes at Broad and Walnut. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.